It's lovely to be with you again. It really is uh, after uh, not being preaching here for a while. Um, and uh, don't know what I said the last time, but anyway, um, it's good to be back after a break uh, and uh, to see um, more faces than there were last time I was here, which is a lovely sign. Um, I want to thank you before we open God's word together for praying for me and uh, for my family. So I get the uh, emotional bit out of the way first. <laughs> um, it's meant a lot to know that um, uh, the, the fellowship here has been upholding us. And uh, the fact that I'm standing here right now is in no small measure due to your prayers. Um, I know that I don't look ill, and often in the mornings particularly I feel like a right fraud um, and undeserving of anybody's prayers. Um, as the day wears on, then the signs begin to show. Um, but uh, I shouldn't... All, all the, the medics are constantly surprised that I'm able to um, be active and do what I do, and our attitude has always been that if... If God gives strength and breath for a day, then we crack on and, and, uh, and get on with life and uh, live it as fully for him as we can. And uh, we just want our progress along this path to be a testimony to his great love and kindness. So, thank you for praying. And uh, you are seeing the answer to your prayers. It's been lovely to be back and also mildly terrifying. Um, as Owen earlier on, uh, when he was uh, saying what was going to be happening and talking about confessing, well, we will confess our sins. And he said, and they will be on the screen behind me. And I <laughs> thought, this is like your worst, your worst sermon illustration come true. You know, it's actually going to happen. Uh, it's going to be up on the screen. Um, and I, I do feel um, sort of uh, preemptively rebuked by the reading. Uh, and I will promise not to go on until midnight. Uh, and if any of you do fall asleep, um, I will try and leave you um, to be refreshed by that. Um, and if I'm still here preaching in the morning, then do come back and, and give me some coffee or something like that, or breakfast. We're going to look together at uh, some of the verses early on in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 18 right the way through to verse 25. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the element of surprise is gone because I, I, the, the picture uh, there was going to come up um, second slide along, um, but never mind. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. If you've got one of the church Bibles, page 1144. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with demonstration, a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So a quick straw poll on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is absolute doddle, got that, no problem, and 1 is eh, what was that about? Uh, how many of you uh, would rate your understanding of that passage as so many of the 10 end? Uh, so many of the 1 end? Or a bit further over? So you're going to tell me what that passage is about. And uh, you're all going to tell me it, and you're all going to tell me not only what this passage is about, but basically the whole of 1 Corinthians, what it's about. So this picture, which would have been revealed to you by surprise at this stage, is a picture of what? Say it out loud. So that's what the passage is about. And that's what the whole of 1 Corinthians is about, really. Uh, The church in Corinth was in many ways, thriving. But the church in Corinth was at a fork in the road. And it didn't realize it. Um, If I'd put that picture up and said, what is the passage about? Your Lord had said a tree or or a field. Or then we would have gone a bit chaotic. So that, that first picture is a little bit more simple and memorable. Um, the Christians in Corinth uh, faced a choice. Uh, in fact, as we'll see, there were kind of four decisions that they had to make. But they faced a fork in the road of what it meant for them to be the church in Corinth. And Paul is writing to them because they didn't know they faced this fork in the road. They were totally unaware of it. They were just kind of steaming on with congregational life as it was in Corinth, as they'd been experiencing it in the years since the church was planted there, almost totally unaware of the fact that they faced a choice as to how the church was going to go, what sort of church it was going to be. Now, we ourselves are often unaware of when we have a fork in the road in the Christian life. 
Um, I am usually aware of a fork in the road in what we might term the rearview mirror. Because I realize I've just passed one. And I've just made a decision. It may be a small one. It may be a large one. But I've just made a decision about what my life is going to be like following Jesus. Sometimes I haven't actually made a decision when I should. And I've just drifted on in same old, same old. So Paul writes to the church in this letter to say to them in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of aspects of their living together, in terms of their sexual morality, in terms of how they are together as a fellowship, in terms of the gifts of the Spirit, in terms of how they treat each other social, with the social differences that there were, in all sorts of ways to do with communion. It, it was going to go on into two Corinthians to do with money and things like that. What kind of Christianity will you have? And he writes to them together. Because what he's talking about is not a group of individuals who happen to get together in the same place on a Sunday morning at the same, roughly the same time. He's talking to them as a group. He's talking to them as a fellowship. We have a primarily individualistic view of the Christian life, which is not the biblical framework. And we bring that together into church. So we come to church and we think, have I got what I was looking for this morning? What did God say to me? Was I blessed? Was I encouraged? Did I like the music? Did I understand the preacher? But the Christian life as it's presented to us in the church, in, in the New Testament, and 1 Corinthians is all about a shared life. So the question is, well, were we blessed? Did we really worship God when we were singing? Did we receive what we needed as a fellowship this morning? How will it be for us through the week? So Paul writes to a church that is at a crossroads. A church that has to decide what kind of church it will be, what kind of fellowship it will be. And as he does so in the passage that, that we read together, there are essentially four kinds of choice that they have to make about what kind of church they're going to be. Now, you, St. Peter's Free Church, will very soon be at a very obvious fork in the road. Because as, as David and Annabelle head off to Australia, then you will have the choice about choosing a new minister. And that's another occasion in the life of a congregation when you will be able to decide about and set and your elders will be in prayer and will be working hard on this. And I don't know if, if in the free church you have like nominating committees or something like that or whatever. But that whole process will be how you deal together with this fork in the road that you're coming up to. What kind of church do we want to be? I'll come back to that a bit later. I'm not going to tell you. You've got to work that out for yourselves. So here are the four choices as we work through the passage. Um, the first choice that they have to consider is, do they want a wisdom that is really foolishness, 
or foolishness that is really wisdom. So if you look at the passage with me, um, we see uh, that Paul very uh, quickly gets into this question where he says, I, I will, quoting the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? There were those in the congregation who were from a Greek background, those from a Jewish background. Corinth was in love with itself as a city for its wisdom. We know how the world works. We have explanations for why people do things. We know what the best life is. We know what the most good is. And whether that was Greeks answering it from their own philosophies, or whether that was Jews in the congregation who would become Christians and were answering it from uh, the, the Jewish perspective, from the Old Testament, they thought they knew from what their cultures had been and yet what they needed was not something from the cultures but what they needed was the wisdom of God expressed in Christ and whereas Christ looked foolish to the Jews in fact offensive to the Jews blasphemous to the Jews and whereas Christ looked absolutely incomprehensible as God to the Greeks. And Christ crucified just bewildered both. How can God die on a cross? And if he's God, he would never have been on the cross. The Jews would have been thinking because that's a curse from God. How, how could Christ and Christ crucified be the right way to model your life? How could that be the ultimate good? How could that be God's way? So were they going to go for everything that they'd grown up thinking, everything that was normal around them in Corinth, everything that was, was culturally acceptable, the quick, easy things to think? Or would they go for the foolishness that was really wisdom because it was from God and it would last how do we think about life it is frighteningly easy for us not really to think about life and just get on with it but as our days so our lives are I mean life is just the accumulation of days. And if we just drift through a day and do it again and again, all of a sudden a decade has disappeared. Our oldest daughter's 30, middle daughter's getting married in less than a month. A month today, it will be the day after the wedding, which has a, an attractive ring about it, I have to say at the moment. Uh, <laughs> forgive the pun. Um, just checking. So easy for a year or more or a decade or the best part of a lifetime to pass. And we've never really considered how we're living. We've just soaked it up from what's around us. Our brains do it that way. We think fast from that limbic system. 
where that's coming from are the things that we've just practiced and we've experienced and, and done repeatedly. As we've grown up, we've just imbibed a way of thinking about life and about the world and about God and about ourselves from the culture around us. It's frightening and easy for our deep presuppositions to be almost totally unconverted whilst we go about doing church and doing the Christian life and whilst we mouth the right words and the epithets and we come out with all the latest gospel hyphenated juxtaposed words and we follow this particular preacher or that particular school or that particular outfit or whatever how do we choose the right way to be the church it's so easy for us just to pick up on the way that the, the world around us organizes itself and its, its institutions, its organizations, its groups, its, its clubs, whatever. So if I can give you an example, I, on Twitter I follow people who annoy me. <laughs> like who doesn't? And, and others that I agree with who are obviously right. Uh, <laughs> And I, and I get emails from, from places offering me 50% off somebody's, a 50% discount off somebody's recent sermons. Those come from the States. And no disrespect to any of you who are from the States. But I, I just find it difficult to imagine John Newton or others offering 50% off their, their most recent sermons. Um, I don't think even David would, would charge for listening to his... <laughs> I didn't mean that. I mean that. Just don't tell him I said that, Annabelle. Uh, <laughs> and I just think that's, that's, that is corporate America dressed in evangelical clothing. And of course, the last place you're going to see that is if you're in America and it's normal to you because you're just thinking about the way you do things and the way the culture does it. That's the wise thing to do. next choice they had to make at this fork in the road was the choice between strength that was really weakness or weakness that was really strength. So to be strong is good. Now that in itself is a statement which is full of the presuppositions of the world around us. To be strong is to be good. That's a good thing. You want to be strong. You don't want to be weak. You don't want to get trodden down. But translate the culture around us into the church and we end up with this kind of, well, what does strong look like? Strong looks like numerically big. Is that true? Strong looks like organizationally slick. <laughs> Not a temptation to many of us, but there we are. <laughs> Strong looks like well-publicized, great materials. Strong looks like successful, in whatever terms. And by hook or by crook, in the church, we can live as if we are strong when we are strong. But the Bible says that we are strong when we're weak. Because then we'd start to depend on God and not upon ourselves.
and we start to use different gauges for how strong we are as a fellowship. How much do we love each other? How quick are we to forgive one another? How vulnerable are we so that people who are vulnerable feel safe? If you're broken and uncertain and you've really screwed up in life and you go into a nice, successful, strong, middle-class church, you might want physically to run out of the place because it's so scarily strong and successful. And you think there's no place for me here I don't even know when to stand up and sit down. And Owen says, my sins are going to be up on the screen behind me. (laughs) Next set of choices they had to make. You'll notice a strong week as as you go through the passage in verse um, 26. Let's take it from there. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Here it comes. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Nothing weaker than the cross. Nothing weaker than being led like a lamb to the slaughter. Nothing weaker than not opening your mouth when tried nothing weaker than letting people nail you to a cross when you're innocent when you could have commanded legions of angels to rescue you the next sort of decision somebody's that are really nobody's or nobody's that are really somebody's Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were influential. But there is something about the world around us, the culture that we're in, a culture of celebrity, a culture of bigging up names, a culture of massing your followings on social media. There is something about our culture which seeps into Christ's church. So we have all our celebrity preachers, celebrity pastors, celebrity bloggers. We have all our celebrity Christians. We like to think that if we can just rope in this influential person and that influential person to our cause and also rope in their money, then we'll do better in God's kingdom. Really? Is it about following the right celebrity Christians? What, what does that do to the church in terms of our tribalism? What does that do to us as a fellowship in terms of our gauging of whether people are in or out? You're in if you follow the right somebodies if you can quote the right somebodies, if you've read the latest thing from the right somebodies, be it a book or a blog or whatever, if you can come out with the latest 
bizarrely hyphenated, which itself is hyphenated, thing about God being outrageous or something. You think, really? Is that all we're saved for? To become fashion followers? That's hyphenated as well. You see, it's infectious, isn't it? Is that why Christ died? Is, is that a foretaste of where we're heading? Somebodies that are really nobodies, or are we content to be nobodies who in God's sight and in God's purposes and plans and in God's work in the world are by his gauges somebodies? Simply by virtue of being his children. Simply by virtue of being adopted into his family in Christ. Simply by virtue of being his agents undercover in this world. For the good of this world. For the saving of souls. Somebody's in an old creation cannot be somebody's in the new creation. Because it's two entirely different creations. So somebody's that are really nobody's in the end who will be shown to have had a hollow status or nobody's that are really somebody's. Or do you content to be? And what's the church culture thing there? Do you want your church to have a great name amongst other churches? Do you want to be famous amongst other churches? Well spoken of, you know, in the echo chamber. Or would you be content for nobody ever to have heard of St. Peter's? Anywhere. Nobody in other church circles, when you go to conferences or when you go to conventions or when you go visiting other churches, ever to have had a scooby about St. Peter's. But to be getting on with being Christ to people here. Does being a somebody church matter? So the fourth choice is essentially I am great or Christ is great. The fourth choice that faced this church in Corinth where everybody sought to be great. So God chose, verse 28, the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him Because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Verse 31, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I am great, or Christ is great. That's a very stark choice. It's very binary. It's very black and white. 
And of course, it's probably something on a continuum in our daily experience, in our experiences at church. But it should always be the great tendency in those who lead congregations and in those of us who are part of the congregations, it should always be the great tendency to want to say Christ is great. It should always be the motive of our hearts to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that everything we do, every way we want to try and make a congregational life progress, make it more effective, uh, and make it more like a foretaste of heaven, and make it part of God's redemptive work in this world. Everything we do points to Jesus. And everything we do therefore becomes worship. Everything becomes worship. The music, the coffee, may it be worship or coffee, um, the welcome at the door, the planning the projects that are organized, the events that are run, the motive for the whole thing, worship. Christ is great. So all these things are summed up in this. All those four choices. Wise or foolish according to this world's standards or God's standards. Strong or weak according to this world's standards or God's standards. Somebody's or nobody's according to this world's standards or God's standards. Nobody's, somebody's, all that. It all gets bound up in this one choice. Are they primarily Corinthians? Functionally, I mean, they all know the right answer, don't we? But functionally, are they primarily Corinthians? Or are they primarily Christians who are in Corinth? Are they primarily those who are in Christ Jesus who are in Corinth? Or functionally, are they Corinthians who happen also to be in Christ? Which comes first? Which is at the heartbeat of their identity which is at the heartbeat of the way they're going to do things what lies at the heart of how they're going to relate with, to one another cross social divides what lies at the heart of the desire for purity within the congregation are they primarily Corinthians or primarily Christ's Will they follow Corinth or will they follow Christ crucified? And of course, Paul has exemplified that amongst them. He sought to, to live the example. He sought to give them, if you like, the, the sort of experiential learning. Because as he goes on to say in chapter 2, verses, uh, in the first five verses, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, 
as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. See how he goes through these categories in his own experience now. He's sort of reiterating in 2, 1 to 5 what he's been writing about in 1, 18 to the end of that chapter, 31. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, that is, using the oratory of, 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 of the schools, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You see, he's exemplified. He has lived the truth that he has been bringing before them at their fork in the road. Our culture gives us Ways to do things, ways to think intellectually, gives us ways to look at our money and our finances. It gives us ways to think about how we do our sport, how we do our lifestyle generally. It gives us ways to think about politics. It gives us ways to think about influence. Our culture around us gives us behaviors and attitudes and ideas and values and gauges about what's successful and good. It gives us dreams to have our culture around us. But we cannot leap out of, would nonetheless seek to dominate us. Maybe you've been a Christian for a good long while. And you know that you're facing a fork in the road yourself. I'm not talking about guidance and you know whether you retire early or not. I'm talking about whether you have accumulated this world's goods and values. You may be here this morning and you're not a Christian. And you know it. And you're at a fork in the road. Will you give your life to Jesus Christ? Or will you do what all the world around you will count as being so obvious that it's a complete no-brainer. And that is just get on living for yourself. Which road will we take? And which road will you as a fellowship take? What kind of church do you want to be? We cannot walk any other way in the Christian life than the way the Savior has gone because that is the Christian way. There is something which sums up for us, though we're not doing it this morning, what that way is. When we take communion, we aren't just remembering an event. When we take communion... We are acknowledging the way we are going to live. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up their cross daily, and follow me. The way of the cross of Christ crucified, of Total disdain by this world, if need be, 
of death to self, of complete obedience to God, out of complete love for God, and valuing his way more than the way that the world screams at us is the right way to live. That's the only way. And though it be painful, and though it be despised, and though we might feel rejected, and though we might not be what every church secretly longs to be, which is not just cool, but cooler than the others. Instead of all that, we go the way of Christ crucified. And what we long to know is Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's no other real way to do it. Let's pray. Lord, we, we, uh, we wonder before you how it will work, what it will look like and feel like to be part of a fellowship that is really only interested in knowing Christ and him crucified. And Lord, I want to thank you for all the signs and expressions of uh, that desire in this place amongst these people. Lord, we pray you would help us to be aware, astute, alert, to the choices that we make as individuals but as a fellowship. We pray that despite all temptations and all the things that the world would tell us are screamingly obvious and all the way that even some of our Western church culture would tell us are screamingly obvious, no-brainers, we might resolutely want Christ and him crucified. And we pray in his name. Amen.